0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, BGW avoid we're prohibited by law, see terms and conditions, 18 plus.
1: I'm Jose Solis, first theater critic.
2: And I'm Alexi Chacon, I'm a cultural critic here at TTF.
1: And we are your second theater friends. Alexi, uh, how's it going? How's been your year so far?
2: Um, I'm doing all right. You know, this year, this week, rather, was the inauguration, and it's been such a hectic year that it's really hard. You know, I take it day by day. And just the fact the inauguration happened without any major drama, because this year has had too much drama already. I think I'm feeling a little more hopeful. So that's kind of how I'm feeling right now.
1: What do you mean no drama, though? Didn't you see Gaga? the anthem
2: that's fair i meant none of the bad drama i know <laughs> <think I> <laughs> they made sure they brought some of the good drama that piece of like brooch that huge brooch that was the drama i wanted and they gave it to me so i'm glad
1: <laughs> do you know the all the words to the national anthem
2: i do not i feel like maybe like i think it's one of those songs where you've heard so many times that if i like recited it without thinking maybe i could get all the words but if i thought too much about it i would stumble. I don't know
1: do you sing my name during the first line yeah that's a, yeah jose definitely <laughs> do you know the national anthem not of your country but i'm not an american so i know my uh, national anthem you have yeah. no reason to know it then there is no <laughs> yeah. reason however i know the history of your national anthem do you know it
2: uh, i know some of the history of it i also know that a lot of the songs performed at the inauguration have like an interesting history that I'll actually talk about later. (laughs)
1: Uh, That sounds great. So what shows are we going to be talking about later today also?
2: Absolutely. So one show that we'll be talking about is Etta and Ella on the Upper upper West Side, which was put together and put on at a Adrian Kennedy Festival at Roundhouse. Um, It's her newest work. And it's just about two sisters, and they're kind of like, they have a lot of conflict in their relationship and the show gets more interesting and kind of delves deeper into the sister relationship.
1: Ooh. And we are also going to be talking about August operas, The Beauty That Still Remains, which is a series of operas that you get to experience at home. But okay, Alex, let's go back to like the trivia that you're going to share with us about all the songs at the inauguration.
2: Yeah. OK, so J-Lo performed This Land Is Your Land. She also did that remix, which referenced her own music, which I think some people really loved and other people didn't. But the song This Land Is Your Land has a really interesting history because she performed the more popularly known version of the song, which drops out a lot of the radical and like political lyrics that the original song had. So a very like famous folk singer, Woody Guthrie, wrote the song in response to God Bless America. And in it, there were two verses that talked about kind of the illusion of the American dream and referenced the fact that America might have justice and freedom and equality for some and not others. But now this, the song that we sing today and that JLo lo performed makes no reference of like a failed American dream. Um, so I just think that's kind of interesting.
1: So it's a lie basically what you're saying, the some J-Lo sang is a lie.
2: Um I think it is a neatly packaged song that hides its roots and I think that I don't know I think that maybe we should we need to think about that and look at the original song which is also really good.
1: Sounds like America to me. I didn't know anything about this dark lyrics to be honest. It's like I mean even if I didn't grow up here like I said I know all your songs. I know this land is your land and I'm like I'm not from fucking California to New York Island. Uh but I know those songs and it's like you have no idea. I think Or maybe you do. How many people who aren't American, who aren't, who don't even live here, who aren't raised here, we know all those songs because they're we learn them through like Hollywood and we learn them through like recordings of like artists, American artists. So, I just want to say that something that really struck me, both with like Gaga, who uh, and this might shock you, Alexis, so please don't clutch your pearls, don't faint, take a seat Mm -hmm. if you have. I am not a Lady Gaga fan. I oh do not. God, what I do not. Yes, I told you. I do not, not like Lady Gaga, but I am not a little monster, so to speak. Um, because, but I'm, I'm making a point, so you don't like slap me because what I'm about to say, uh, you know, to lead to what I'm about to say. Um, I, you know, I, I, she's a great artist. She has an incredible voice and all that. Like, I'm not gonna be like trashing her, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't connect to Lady Gaga uh, because I find her artifice and the persona that she puts on to be very, very, very annoying. Where she's like very like serious and very like, I mean, I don't, I never feel, I never get any sincerity from Lady Gaga. But when she was doing, uh, when she was singing the national anthem, I think it's one of the only times where she's delivered the performance where it was less about Lady Gaga and the voice. And, you know, like when she like opens her arms, when she sang The Sound of Music at the Oscars and that kind of stuff where her like emotion really came across. And I noticed the same thing about JLo. Like when she, when she was singing, this land was made for you and me. I don't think those lines had ever like hit me in the same way that they did When she did it precisely because right now it kind of feels like we are alive. Like, holy shit, we made it. So it's like, I don't know. It was obviously like the context of this, like horrors that we have been subjected to for like the past four years are something that we hope to put behind us. But I mean, but yeah, like the sincerity was like what struck me. So I don't know if you have noticed, maybe this is just my impression, but like, whenever people sing at these kinds of events, like uh, government things and like inaugurations and like Kennedy Center Arts and stuff like that, it's always so technical. It's always like very like, let's impress people with technique and with like, uh, you know, we need to like be perfect for the president or we need to be perfect for the government. And it's never really, they're never really like sincere performances, at least uh, in my eyes. Absolutely. I mean,
2: like the lyrics hold a different meaning when somebody that like, that you relate to, or that comes from a similar culture to you, like sings those words, suddenly this land is your land. Is it like a white folk song that was like shoved down it, like um, Latin Americans' throats through like neo imperialism and all of that? It suddenly becomes like this, like it suddenly becomes a more of an inclusive anthem. And then you also have, right, she said the Pledge of Allegiance in Spanish, like a portion of it in this like performance. And then she put in her own songs and just like that freedom to kind of like repurpose a song that in other words, like in other ways could have grown stale. It's suddenly modernized to better reflect like the communities that are in this country. I agree. I think it was a lot more sincere. And like you said, it's because like we've been through four years where the corruption and the harm have been so explicit And like everyone's emotionally exhausted and we just want a reason to have a little more hope. And definitely those performances help do that, I think.
1: Oh, absolutely. The other thing is that I know, and I know, and please, if you're like this, like, you know, like super like patriotic person, please don't come after me and don't send me death threats and don't like kill me or anything. I mean, (laughs) not you, Alexi, but like listeners out there. I I mean, I'm kidding. I know none of you are that. But one of the things that I've always found, like it really annoys me. And this is again, like a pet peeve, is that whenever people sing at these kinds of events, why is it always so like somber? And like, so like, I know solemnity and all of that, but I'm like, when I saw it, like, it was so funny. Cause like all my friends were like, J-Lo's performing, j performing, J-Lo's performing. I'm like, I'm not her agent, uh, but I appreciate that because yes, I need to know when J-Lo's doing stuff. And every time, <laughs> like, did you happen to uh, to see Jennifer Lopez at the uh, at the ball drop thing on New Year's Eve?
2: yes oh my god In that beautiful couture outfit she was just like she raised herself to a
1: new level literally like but it's I was like remember she did this like yes, yeah, like she started off with like a ballad and then like I was like you know I was waiting for that like j moment so to speak mm-hmm. and instead like she gave us like again like a very like solemn like very uh she did Dream On by Aerosmith and I was like j I don't want you to be like all like straight drag right now. I want <laughs> I want lo and, and this is what I'm always left wanting from these kinds of things. Like, you know, I don't remember. I think it was when Cher maybe was like honored at the Kennedy Center where uh, I believe it was Adam Lambert who did Believe. And I mean, when you think Believe and you think Cher, you think this goes balls and like lights, right? and they always do like some, like, ballad version, and I'm like, I don't want a ballad version, so, I mean, <laughs> I want Jennifer Lopez to come out from, like, the Capitol Dome, and, like, hang there, and be, like, una noche más, and, like, lasers everywhere, and Amy Klobuchar, and I don't know, um, who else, I don't know, like, Amy Klobuchar, and, like, all these people dancing. You want to see Michelle Obama
2: dancing to you, like J Lo's like glitz and glam, like um, like performance. I think that would be beautiful.
1: Yeah, so do you. That's America. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, God bless Solemnity and God bless America, I guess, but like give us some dance next time, please.
2: I think that would be great. I think more people would watch. Um, honestly, if you make government more relevant through literal just pop culture, more people care about it. But I mean, that was kind of what, you know, things are always kind of a compromise. But I do want I want people to look at inaugural performances the way we look forward to the Super Bowl. I want like Lady Gaga, like literally, like jumping off from the Capitol Dome like she did at the Super Bowl, like flying down, like as a dove, landing beautifully. The drama. That's what I want.
1: <laughs> uh, amen. So let's go talk about our shows now. So kick us off, Alexi.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the show that I want that I had suggested we both watch was Etta and Ella on the Upper East East. Oh, I keep messing that up. So the show that I had suggested we both watch is Etta and Ella on the Upper West Side by Adrian Kennedy. And the show, as I said before, is really about these two sisters who are both writers and they both kind of have this very kind of competitive relationship with each other where one tries to write stories that the other is writing they both reference their own lives which are very similar Um, and it basically culminates and climaxes into this lead up where it gets very like surreal you know there are ghosts there are murders and you start to question the entire premise of the play which i thought was a really fun twist at the end for me Um, because when I watched it, I just thought, ah, this is like another show about a family that has conflicting relationships, which we all have. And I was like, I can relate to some dynamics and conflicting relationships. But then it got surreal. And when Ghosts entered it, I was like, this is definitely more of something I like.
1: (laughs) Are you a big Adrienne Kennedy fan? Do you know a lot of her work?
2: I've read some of her work before, but I'm not a super huge fan. But I think that's just because she's been underproduced. So I haven't been exposed as much. And so this was part of a festival with Roundhouse. And the whole point of that festival was to expose more people to her work. So it worked for me because I started reading more of her plays.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how what the setup is like, what the staging is like, and you know the, the performance itself and what people can expect when they watch this?
2: Yeah, so it's really, really simplistic. It's a woman played by Carolyn Clay who narrates the entire show um, from a table. And essentially the show itself is told in like numbered fragments and these fragments read more like poetry and prose which is very much along the lines of like adrian kennedy's work like fragmented prose and poetry that you have to stitch together into a narrative like if you want a show that's going to give you a very clean cut beginning middle and end this is not the show for it instead you have one woman kind of giving you a stream of consciousness, recollection of different memories that describe two sisters. Um, And it's much more true to the human experience and how we remember our own memories because we don't remember our lives in like a very neat story. They come in fragments and we make sense of the fragments as they make sense to each other. Um, And that's
1: exactly what this play does. One of my favorite things about Adrian Kennedy is that um, she loved like, movie stars, and she loved, like, stars, and she loved, you know, uh, people in pop culture. So, in fact, when I first uh, read the title of the play, I thought it was going to be about, like, Anna James and, like, Ella Fitzgerald, which I would not be surprised if that's how she got the names, to be honest, because she does use people from the pop culture that she grew up loving, Um, and, like including them in that. But the reason why I'm asking about the staging is basically because I had a question for you. Like, do you think this, do you, <laughs> let me, let me, let me think how to ask this without, so, you know, like, it was, it was really good. But why wasn't it an audio play then? Like, I mean, were you like compelled, uh, you know, basically, it feels kind of like a reading, so to speak. So were you, uh, were you hoping maybe, were you wishing like, Did you ever think, uh, why isn't this like audio? Sure, I think that
2: if I had heard it as an audio play, it might've been a little too confusing for me. So I actually had to watch the play twice for it to make perfect, like more sense to me. Cause the first time I read it, it was unclear which characters, like it was unclear from what perspectives were being spoken, what the actual like number of characters in the show were and how the relationships all made sense. And if I heard it as an audio play, I think it would have been really easy for me to get lost in the fragments of the memories. And it was much easier to have someone who, like, showed their emotions kind of, like, provide that extra context for what the story meant. Um, the best example that I can think of, like, as a comparison is that, like, it's so hard for me to read Shakespeare. But if I see Shakespeare performed, it's so much easier easier for me to understand the story and I think that's exactly what happens with this show too like when you see it performed the fragmented memories make a lot more sense
1: but you would be listening to it I mean you wouldn't be reading it necessarily is what I'm saying like yeah. just the voice that you're getting yeah but also like you know the uh, so you the you know the, the the titles were like we were moving from like uh memory to memory like did help you then seeing them oh screen. yeah
2: absolutely okay. seeing like the different memories like like noted on the screen I was like okay like I need to reorient myself
1: yeah they were like you know like the thing that I really liked about about the performance then was like there were moments when she was like looking it felt like she was looking straight into your eyes <laughs> and she was like telling the story like to you so I was like okay okay I get it I I, I you know I liked it a lot it's great but I kept I kept wondering like hmm, I wonder why they didn't just go for audio but maybe I'm answering my own question right now
2: no, that's fair. I think her performance, Carolyn Clays, was just like so magnificent. I mean, it was very intense when it needed to be. Um, and like you said, directly into your eyes, which is like kind of hard to do in a recorded
1: like performance. That's like, kind of like, OK. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: I think it's basically because you, because I've seen Adrian Kennedy's uh, work on stage and I kept like waiting for something to happen right and when you get the element of video i kind of uh have become accustomed to like waiting for something you know that, that like feels like oh okay i get this i get like this needs to be seen um and not that the performance itself wasn't worthy of that because it is but i guess it was just like my expectation as a as an audience member as a theater lover that i was like okay i'm waiting for like the uh when someone else gonna come up or when's the lighting going to be like super like drastically changed, right? Or when is that, I don't know, like a, are we going to get like a set at some point or something like that? But um, I mean, kudos to them for what they accomplished. Do you want to say anything more about the show?
2: Um, Just that everyone should try to see it and to give it a chance and see it twice. Cause I think that's when you really get, I think you, and it's only 30 minutes long. So seeing it twice is not a big, like, yeah.
1: But also, like, keep in mind that when you say uh, 30 minutes of Adrian Kennedy, it's like a lot happens. So, yeah. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't drag anything. So this is not what I mean. But 30 minutes of Adrian Kennedy are like five plays by any other writer, basically.
2: Oh, that's fair. It's one, well, that's why I had to see it twice, because it was 30 minutes where I felt like, oh, wait, I definitely missed something. But it's well worth it
1: the double watch <laughs> have you ever seen or read this play that she wrote uh called what's it called all oh, the movie star has to star in black and white
2: i haven't seen it and i haven't read it
1: oh my god it's so exquisite it's like she uh it's a story about her own life basically uh i mean not about her own life it's a story about someone's life so it's this character and then uh marlon brando paul newman sorry not paul newman paul henry montgomery clift uh Shelley Winters and Betty Davis are characters in it, also. Oh,
2: that's such a fun! That's such a fun cast. Even like the characters, not even.
1: Wait, that is really fun. I'll have to see yeah. it. For sure. Yeah, to see it was like she was. She talked a lot about how she often had to imagine herself as this white movie stars because there were no movie stars like her, basically. So yeah, that's it. so check that out if you can. Uh, next up, I'm so excited about this one because I love any production that involves accessories and like, you get stuff sent to your house. So Onsite Opera created this uh, performance, I guess, called The Beauty That Still Remains. And what happens is that they have created three different short operas based on diaries of people like Anne Frank and Virginia Woolf and when you buy the tickets and when you sign up for the performances you get a little package delivered to your home with beautifully wrapped uh librettos like you get three librettos and you get information about who the people who wrote the diaries were you get information about the performers obviously but then you get the librettos themselves which are fragments of the diaries of these people and you are asked to go on the website and like listen to each opera individually. So what did you think about this, Alexi? Were you as excited as I was when you got the, like, the little box?
2: And I literally... I literally felt like an influencer when I got the box. (laughs) I wanted to do like an unboxing session on my Insta story and be like, hi, everybody, like, well, like perfectly just done nails. I want everyone to see this new show. Like, thank you so much for sending me this package. Um, And honestly, no, I liked it. It made the like performances so much more interactive. And to be honest, it was hard for me to understand the words at the beginning because I'd never heard opera before. So it was a different format for me. And the librettos made it so much easier. And like having like little photographs or little mementos, it just made the whole experience richer. So it was really cool for me. Like, have you seen in-person operas before? Or is this like your first interaction with it? Because I haven't.
1: <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I've been I've been to the opera and I've seen, I've done operas before. Like I did, Uh, I mean, not, I haven't done them, but what I mean is like I've I've uh, listened to on-site operas before, and I love this company so much. Last year they did uh, an opera that was on the phone. Oh, really? Yeah. And like someone, so cool. someone called you, and it was like it was like a similar thing to this, like where you got like your information, not actual physical uh, items, but you got information about what the opera was going to be about, and you were about it was about a lover that was like far away and like your lover called you and sang to you about how much they missed you it was so
2: beautiful i would love to get that could you imagine getting like a phone call like i love you i miss you they should have done that
1: in this pandemic i think people could use that well i mean they did it in this pandemic and someone sang to you with live accompaniment oh wow it was really (sighs) exquisite so okay so you said you wanted to unbox it so unboxed it, uh, I guess, an audio version of right now. Like, which one did you listen to first? What was your, like, how did you pick which one to listen? And then did you have to, like, take breaks or did the whole thing in one, like, sitting?
2: Oh, I took breaks because there were three and they're very powerful. So you unbox and there are three folders and each folder has the libretto, like you said, and little artifacts and a QR code. And I think what was really cool is that the librettos felt... Like normally if it was just a like, you know, normal opera, you would just say like, ah, oh, these are printed lyrics. But because the opera lyrics are based off of like real journals and diaries and like real words that were written by the person that this story is based off of, it feels a lot more intentional and it feels a lot more significant. So the first one I listened to was Anne Frank's, um, the opera based on Anne Frank. And I think they did it really well. I have I had read Anne Frank's diary before, so it was cool to kind of see how this entire diary was condensed into an opera. Um, and I think after that, I just kind of like listened to each separately. Like which out of the three were was your favorite? Can you even choose a favorite?
1: Absolutely, Virginia Woolf.
2: <laughs> yeah, that one was very cool. That one... <laughs> I hadn't, like, encountered Virginia Woolf's work since, like, high school when I read her poems, so I felt like I was back in English
1: class. (laughs) Oh, no, did they force you to read them in class?
2: Well, I mean, I, like, am a nerd, so I really enjoyed reading them in class, (laughs) so it didn't feel, like, forced, but I definitely read it and was like, oh, my God, like, she, I don't know, I kind of, I kind of, like, related to some of her energy.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, I'm sorry, Alexi, that's, like, I mean, that's... It's very heartbreaking. Uh, but I mean, so you never, it is kind of heartbreaking. She's like, I love her and I relate to her energy a lot. But I mean, I wish people, I wish I didn't have to hear people say they relate to her because like, she was like a very impressive like,
2: writer. Literally, like when my friend told me her favorite book is like Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. And I was like, oh, that's trauma. So <laughs> that's trauma.
1: So like, yeah, I, I love this one so much. And, uh, you know, this one has... Text by Virginia Woolf, obviously, and music by Dominic Argento. And Vanessa Caridi is the mezzo-soprano who performs as Virginia. And wait, Alexi, does this mean that you have never seen The Hours?
2: I have. Like the movie, right? With Meryl Streep. Yeah. I've seen it.
1: I okay, have. So you remember Virginia Woolf there, right? Oh, that's true. So this is my
2: third encounter with Virginia Woolf. Wait, that was a really clever movie. I remember really liking it.
1: The book, by the way, is pretty exquisite also. So you've never read the book, right?
2: No, I haven't read the book.
1: You know, one of my favorite things about the book by Michael Cunningham is that, uh, and I promise I'll go back to the opera in a second. But one of my favorite things about the book by Michael Cunningham is I read it way before the movie um, came out, and you remember the character that Meryl Streep plays in the movie? Uh, her name's Clarissa uh, Dalloway, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the, you know. In the the book, which is also like very like Adrian Kennedy's stream of consciousness, each character, right, obviously gets like a chapter. And then there's a moment when Meryl Streep's character, uh, Clarissa, is walking down the street in New York and she sees that people are shooting a movie. And Clarissa in the book wonders, I wonder if Meryl Streep is in this uh, cast and I was like, I mean, it would have been like too meta if like Meryl Streep in the movie would have been like, I wonder if Meryl Streep is shooting a film near here. But that's like my unnecessary piece of like trivia for people who haven't read The Hours.
2: Not, um, I, like, you can go. But I was just saying, in high school, I was a big Meryl Streep fan. I watched like like so many of her films. Like that was like birthday gifts. People just give me Meryl Streep movies.
1: Anyway. Are you for real? What, yeah, what do they no. give you?
2: Yeah, no. They gave me the hours. They gave me like the Iron Lady, Sophie's Choice. Um, I think postcards from the Edge, or there's another one. I mean, there are too many for me to name. I like, yeah. I am a big Merle Street fan. <laughs>
1: okay, I'll have to send you She Devil then if you don't have it. <laughs> I don't. Um, you don't? Okay, Alexi. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on that. So, it's, it's a, you know, like, and the reason why I love this Virginia Woolf opera so much was because Virginia Woolf was such a morose writer. And I don't mean that as something bad, but it's like, there's a recording. I think it's the only recording or one of the only recordings of her voice that's available. And she does not sound obviously like a mezzo-soprano. She sounds like her books. She sounds like her poems. She sounds like her literature. She was someone who experienced mental illness through her, her entire life. So Virginia Woolf usually spoke almost in whispers. So it's really moving. And this is one of the reasons why I love opera and why this one struck me the most. That's because, you know, like, when you have someone like Anne Frank, for instance, right, who was a teenage girl and obviously undergoing horrors, right? She's a teenage girl. And, like, when you're reading Anne Frank's um, diary, she sounds like a teenage girl, right? She is young and... I, I get it. It's what I'm trying to say. When someone captures that like energy and that like hope that um, Anne Frank would have had, even you know, living through what she had to live through. Uh, but with Virginia Woolf, I was really moved because uh, Vanessa Caridi's performance kind of gave me hope and kind of felt like Virginia Woolf was singing from a place very like inside her that didn't really exist for her in real life, like where she kind of wanted that little bit of hope that Anne Frank has. So I found it profoundly moving because it allowed this text, right? Like Virginia Woolf's diaries are so sad, but it allowed the text to reach like um, maybe like a, a, a grace that unfortunately Virginia Woolf never really found in life, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think when I listened to it, I definitely understood, I think it was a good compliment to her work that I've read before. I think that reading it made it, made like provided a lot more context to her work as well, because the diaries, which I haven't read, like before I read the fragments from the librettos, I think, just add kind of like that personal sense of where her poetry is coming from. So I felt like listening to it and engaging with it was a lot richer because I knew of how she had been able to capture her struggles with mental illness so well in her poetry. Um, And I think it just also kind of, I think it really humanized her, you know, because the poetry that she writes is beautiful, you know, and it's almost like, How do I want to describe it? I mean, it's just beautiful to see the work that was created trying to express her struggles with mental illness. And it's kind of daunting and intimidating because like we all struggle with mental illness on some form or another. And we know that like we're not creating like Virginia Woolf pieces of poetry. But when you read her diaries, it sounds a lot more human and you can relate even more to her, which I think is super important. So I think the opera had a lot of significance in that way.
1: Okay, wonderful. So, The Diary of the One Who Vanished has music by Leo Janasek and text by Josef Kalda. A World Turned Upside Down has music by Juliana Hall and text by Anne Frank. And, From The Diary of Virginia Woolf has music by Dominic Argento and text by Virginia Woolf. And I want to applaud On Site Opera because, at a time when, you know, obviously nothing can be performed live in in community, they have done something really wonderful and trying to recreate how you know the exquisiteness of opera and the sumptuousness and you know the fact that we get to have this physical experience with all this like librettos and like little postcards and photographs and all of this i i mean obviously nothing can recreate like going to the met and you know seeing an opera performed live it just gives you goosebumps but for the times that we are in, I think on-site opera are doing really, really, really marvelous work. So thank you, uh, on opera, for that and for letting us experience an opera at home. I hope you're going to be listening to Wolf at Home more often, Alexi.
2: Absolutely. This has uh, turned me on to opera, and I can't wait to like listen to more.
1: Did you know, by the way, that there's an at-the-hours opera that's coming up at the Met at some point when when things happen again really
2: yeah you're making me want to like I'll probably watch the movie this weekend I'll probably look for the book I mean I I would prepare for that I would
1: (laughs) yeah and Kelly O'Hara is going to be playing the uh Julianne Moore character so yeah
2: I mean that's honestly beautiful so (laughs) I'm excited
1: I'm very excited as well Next up, check out my interview with Miranda Goh and Rashad V. Chambers of Theatre Producers of Color. When oh and Rashad V. Chambers, welcome to Token Theatre, friends. I'm very honored and excited to see both of you today. Can we get started by having the two of you tell our viewers and our listeners about this beautiful initiative that you have going on, Theatre Producers of Color, what it is, how it started... Where it's going. And also, by the way, congratulations on your first week.
3: Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to kick us off. Um, So, Rashad and I have yet to meet in person, uh, but we bonded um, over our shared values and our goals for what we want to accomplish in the industry. this summer uh, this past summer Uh, we're also part of the industry standard group Uh, we're founding members of that initiative Um, but we were thinking about questions of how to you know address the lack of racial diversity on broadway specifically within commercial theater Um, and looking about looking at you know where does the change actually come from it became apparent to me that Um, change has to come from the top down and, you know, the person at the top is the producer. Um, So thinking about my own journey within commercial producing, um, you know, what struck out, what stuck out to me was how hard it was to even get access to education in commercial producing. Um, You know, the programs that are out there are great, but you know, oftentimes they're exclusive. You need to get a recommendation from someone to get in They're expensive. Um, So, I had thought about, um, you know, similar to you, Jose, I'd love to, you know, bounce, you know, these thoughts off with you with BIPOC Critics Lab. Um, But my idea was to put together a program uh, that, you know, was accessible to all people who identified as BIPOC um, to learn how to become commercial producers. Um, And in thinking about that idea, I met Rashad uh, and he, you know, I was like, what does this program look like? How many weeks will it be? Who will, who will be teaching it? Um, and I knew I needed someone who, you know, had credit on Broadway and who was doing the thing um, and who was a natural educator. Um, so I think Rashad and I were on a Zoom and he mentioned, um, like, this is the first time we were on a Zoom together, but he mentioned, um, oh yeah, like I was uh, speaking about how to become a commercial producer uh, on this lovely panel. And I was like, oh, like that, that sounds like that could be a good fit. Um, and so I chatted with Rashad and we kind of um, hit it off and found that what we were both thinking could be a great match for the both of us. Um, and we started uh, on our way thinking and planning about teapot theater producers of color. Um Sarsha, I, I'll let you chime in and share your your your, your side of the story.
4: Yes, thank you. Um, thank you for having me, Jose. Um, I have to say it's it's been a, a great journey working on TPOC with Miranda and the team. Um, you know it's funny how things happen in in this in the world. Um, I'm one of the few black Broadway producers. Um, For now, that's going to change very soon. Um, But I had the pleasure of being on the panel for Producing 101 for Black Women in Theater Appreciation Day last summer. And after having that experience, I just had a lot of people reach out to me and say, you know, how appreciative they were of my insight and for my knowledge and guidance. And And it started making me think like, okay, maybe I should think about the educational parts of producing. I always try to give back and volunteer for various aspects just because I know representation matters. And I want to know, I want other people to know that it's possible to have a career in theater. Um, I believe there are a lot of, you know, younger people of color who don't even know you can do something on the business side of theater. They only know about actors. Maybe directors, but um, yeah. So that was sort of my thought process, and then maybe a week later, I met Miranda through the industry standard group, and I had mentioned, you know, being a part of the panel and how people had so many questions, and how I thought about doing more of that. And then she emailed me and said, "Hey, I've, I'm I'm starting this thing, and I want to talk to you about it." And that's sort of how it all came to fruition. We both had a shared vision of wanting to make the landscape more equitable for people who look like us and be able to give them that access.
1: I have often asked myself this question and that's why I want to ask both of you that same question. Knowing in some way that we were entering fields where no one looked like us, where no one, you know, where we probably were not even gonna be welcome. Why the hell did we go into that? I was like, what were you thinking? For me, I
4: I 100% believe representation matters, as I said, but it's also not a deterrent to me to not see myself. Um, In various ways of my life, I've been pretty fearless in just kind of pursuing anything. I guess ignorance is bliss, and I just, you know, kind of just go for things and, and just try it. And, you know, most of my life, because of my interests, I've been one of few people of color in the room but i just i just keep going you know and it was really just my interest in creating and loving the idea of taking something from page to stage that made me interested in producing but i didn't really have any mentors when i started producing there were no black lead producers on broadway you no know, now there are a handful But luckily I had, you know, some white allies that were very generous with their time and, you know, would listen to my questions, would meet with me for breakfast or for coffee and sort of help nurture me. And so we just need more of that. And we need more people of color um, to have the bandwidth to do it, because even the ones that are there, there are so few of us that everyone wants, you know, some of our time and we don't always have it to give because of our own endeavors. But I think, you know, programs like TPOC make it possible to be able to um, just expand the, the numbers, the knowledge and everything.
3: Yeah, my reason for getting into it. Um, I, I don't know if you know, if you know this Jose, uh, but I didn't grow up in the theater world. I was an ice hockey player for 12 years. So I came into the theater game relatively late. Um, but My reason for getting into all of this uh, was just being struck by seeing myself on stage in an authentic way for the first time. Um, You know, shows like The Wolves by Sarah DeLapp, Um, you know, it's a show about high school soccer players. So, of course, I resonated with that. Um, Usual Girls by Ming Pfeiffer, her representation of young Asian American women. those shows really struck a chord with me um, and kind of opened my eyes to the power of storytelling and representation. Um, so I knew I wasn't going to be on the creative side as a, you know, myself telling those stories, but I wanted to be a part of the team that would help bring those stories to uh, the wider world. And I think what appeals to me about commercial producing is that the shows that do make it. Into the commercial sphere are part of this larger cultural conversation um, and do have the opportunity to reach thousands of people in a meaningful way. Um, so that's my backstory, and you know, hoping to keep that dream alive uh, and stay optimistic.
1: Hockey, I mean, Miranda, right like you blow my mind, like every time I talk to you, you're like, and by the way, I used to do this, and I'm like, oh my god, um, I'll have to ask. I don't know anything about hockey, but I have questions about hockey, but never mind. Um, So there's, you know, there's, you're both touching on something that's like really interesting to me. And it's the fact that, for instance, like when I started my lab for critics also, people don't necessarily know. I mean, Rashad, you said like, sure, like people can look at actors, right, and directors. And Miranda, you said that creatives and you mentioned writers, for instance, but there are careers and Uh, you know, like jobs, I would say in theater and then the creative um, industries that people have no idea what we do. For instance, like people don't necessarily know what a critic does. People don't necessarily know what a producer does. So for the people out there who maybe don't know that they can even be producers because they have no idea what that might involve and what that means. Can you tell them what it's all about? Like, why do you love producing.
4: Sure. You want me to start with Miranda?
3: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) You're the, you're the program mentor. (laughs)
4: Um, I I look at producing in uh, in two ways and I like to explain it because people often ask me this question. And so um, for Broadway, most people start off as a co-producer and your main responsibility is raising money. And you work under a lead producer. You can have up to four lead producers, and they basically put together a team of co-producers that raise money. And you go out and you you help um, find investors. And you know, depending on how much you can raise, you may say, "I'll take a two hundred fifty thousand dollars slot or a five hundred thousand dollars slot." But your main responsibility is raising money, and then you may be able to go to a marketing or advertising meeting and you know and learn and be able to be nurtured. But as a lead producer, and um, this is something that may happen on Broadway, it may happen in a developmental space. I look at the lead producer as sort of like a CEO or a project manager. You're basically responsible for every aspect of the production, whether it's um, working on the budgets, raising money, hiring personnel, you know, the marketing team, advertising team, director. Um, overseeing the casting process. You're literally putting together every single piece of the production. So when I say from page to stage, you are working on every aspect of bringing that show to life, working closely with the director to understand what does it look like? What's the set? What are the costumes? What are the lighting? And overseeing that entire process with your general manager, working on the budget. How much can we spend here? Or there? How much marketing do we need? Do we want to advertise on the bus? Do we want a New York Times ad? You know, all of those things. That's all like pre-pro. And then when the show running, how do we get butts in the seats? You know, what is our plan? Are we going to go on the view? Are we going to, you know, do... Broadway and Bryant Park, like all of those things are part of a producer's job. So the creative aspects, and then there are financial aspects of of the job.
1: How do you have time to do
4: anything? (laughs) Well, you have a full team around you. You know, you hire people and you have every department works and does their own job. And you hire people that you like and that you trust, but you do have to oversee it. You do have to be the one that signs off on everything. And it's not easy, but, you know, when you have experience and you have the right people working under you, it makes it a lot easier to to make it happen.
1: I wonder if the two of you can talk a little bit about, I mean, like you both love producing and that this is like your, your life path. But then this year you find yourselves becoming educators. I was very surprised with myself when last year I was like, people were like, you're an educator now. And I'm like, oh my God, what does that even mean? So, uh, you know, is this a newfound role for you? And if not, and if you always, you know, consider yourselves educators, how has this like extra, you know, like producer slash educator thing uh, made you feel like, uh, what excites you about that? What have you discovered about yourself as educators?
3: Yeah, I, I will say, I don't know if I technically consider myself an educator. I've kind of been behind the scenes putting the whole thing together. And I'll say we also have a great team uh, that includes Jamie Joanne Waldorf, Devin Clurry, and Penny Pun on the TPOC team. Um, So I myself, you know, I'm a producer in training as well. Um, I'm, you know, always looking to absorb knowledge and advice Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I engaged Rashad in the first place uh, was you know seeking his advice on how to chart a path for myself Um, so I'm definitely constantly learning um, and you know trying to figure out uh, what exactly a commercial producer does myself Um, but I think you know aside from the term educator, it's been, I have found that, uh, I do have a passion for, uh, creating opportunities for other people to share, uh, in some of the privileges I've had. Um, you know, uh, the, the training that I've had, um, has come about because of my privilege. Um, and so in thinking about how we affect change on Broadway, specifically in the commercial theater, um, You know, I, it all all starts with the question of why doesn't this exist, right? Like why, why don't these people have uh, access to this sort of education and mentorship and training? Um, So, you know, we opened applications in December for two weeks, not knowing how many we would receive. We got over 300 um, with only 25 slots, right? So it um, was you know, the response was unbelievable. And it just goes to show how many people are um, hungry for this opportunity and uh, to, you know, get started on on their own paths to commercial producing. Um, So I'll just say, you know, we had our first class on Monday with the producer Ron Simons as our guest speaker. um, And it was was pretty magical. I'll let Rashad share his thoughts too, but, um, you know, Uh, One of the people that I started Teapok with is Osh Ganima from uh, Broadway for all. He is uh, the CEO and founder there. um, And Broadway for all is our uh, incubator. Um, But we did a a commercial producing program together a few years ago. um, And, you know, he texted me right after we closed the zoom and he's like, I have goosebumps. Like that was incredible. Um, But it really makes a difference, you know, Uh, reflecting upon it a little afterwards, it was a room, albeit a virtual one, that was administered by BIPOC, you know, taught by BIPOC, um, and comprised of completely uh, people of color. And that's not something I've ever experienced before. And you could just tell the energy, the questions being asked, um, you know, why are things this way? Uh, what can we be doing to shake things up? That's just something I hadn't experienced before. Um, so it felt really good. Um, I'm sure, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Jose. Um, but Rashad, I'll let you uh, share share what you think as well.
4: Absolutely. First, I still pinch myself a little bit that I'm the program mentor because I feel like I'm still learning myself. But um, I guess that's the joy of life, right? We're always learning. And they say every every teacher is a student, every student is a teacher. So um it's it's been such a joy to work on this. I don't know if I if I consider myself an educator, but I always tried to give back. And I always try to make myself available for other producers who or aspiring producers who were who were trying to learn. I would volunteer for theater resources unlimited regularly um, for some of their events because I think that you know it really takes a village and I know once upon a time when I first moved to New York and I was a little sponge and was trying to soak everything up and you know there wasn't a CTI there wasn't a commercial theater institute back then but the Broadway League had a program called the producer development program so I would go to different seminars there and, and just try to learn everything that I could I wasn't even producing yet. So, um, I guess, no, um, I didn't think of myself as an educator, but now that I'm sort of in this space, um, I enjoy it. And I enjoy the fact that there are lots lots of people who are interested in learning and in and, and, and doing this as a career. And as Miranda said, the fact that we received over 300 applications for 25 slots just goes to show that there is a demand. There are other producing programs out there but there just aren't many out there that are, you know, taught and shepherded by other people of color. And I think that that's truly important. People wanna know that it's a safe place and that they can learn from people who look like them. So as this sort of um, moves forward, you know, Miranda and I have already talked about, you know, how can we make it a regular class? How can we find the funding to do it at least annually? And how can we even do some one-off seminars? So that, so the things that we can't um, cover in ten weeks, maybe we can do you know a sem- another seminar here and there just throughout the year to be able to still keep the learning process going. And about Monday, our kickoff was amazing. Everyone came, just so enthusiastic to learn and to grow and to share. And they ask such great questions and I'm just really excited about the next nine weeks because we've really, not to toot our own horns, put, we've really put together a dynamic group of speakers and we have the best of Broadway um, coming in to share their knowledge with this class.
3: I think
1: this is actually the moment where we need to toot our own horns. I'm listening to what you're saying. And I mean, Miranda's gonna join me next week at a salon at the Kennedy Center, precisely about this also. And if we look back at the shitty hell of a year that was 2020, and look at what you created, look at what we created while the world was falling apart. And while things were not going great for anyone, I mean, there's like, we're all still stuck home because of a pandemic and there's chaos and war. And you were able to create a place of beauty, a place of community. So if you won't toot your own horns, I'll toot all the horns in the world <laughs> for yeah.
4: Well, thank you. Well, I give it, I give all the credit to Miranda and her team because they made it happen and they made it happen quickly.
3: However terrible uh, these past few months have been, I mean, you know, everyone's out of work. Uh, The thing that we love to do is unavailable. Um, I think it has been inspiring to see all of these different things that people have put their time and energy into creating. Um, I mean, I can't even count the number of organizations that are just existing to do good and to improve the industry that we're in. So um, yeah, I I definitely find that encouraging and and inspiring um, for, you know, when we're actually back up and running and seeing what we, what we look like after that.
1: You mentioned something that I think is really wonderful and like, I'm smiling, I'm grinning like a fool because I think the same thing every time that I meet with the critics at my lab. And it's that, there are no places like that, I mean, like, except maybe with, like, our own families and, like, when, who also we can't even, like, see these days. But it's so rare, especially, like, in theater, to be in a room with other people of color and only people of color where we're creating safe spaces. And regardless of, like, you know, your spiritual beliefs or not, it's kind of like an equivalent of, like, a church, you know, without, like, I don't know, like, again, like not in the structure of a church, but it's a place where you know you're safe. It's a place where you know you can be yourself, where you, where you know you can communicate your innermost fears, but also your dreams, your hopes, and all of that. So basically I to say that I am I'm so excited for nine more weeks of that for you. And so far in terms of the... Um, I guess the uh, feedback that you're getting from the industry and the feedback that you're getting also from people who become aware of what you're doing, what's that been like? Like what has that taught you or told you about the state of uh, theater? It's been pretty enthusiastic. I mean, even
4: I've had many peers reach out to me even when the press release went out back in December, just offering their support, asking if they can do anything to help. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, have wanted to know other producers of color or how to get them involved with their productions and didn't know how, didn't have the resources to to meet people. So I think that they're looking for this new wave of producers and and people are are ready to put them to work.
3: You know, uh, it it has been Nice to, to get the coverage that we were able to receive, um, you know, for it is a relatively slow news cycle, as I'm sure we're all aware. But the fact that, you know, when we launched the industry standard group, like we were the the main feature of Broadway briefing that day. Um, and, uh, you know, likewise with TPOC to be included in that way and to have that visibility has been really um, impactful. Um so yeah you know i we have people still emailing us to um you know apply for the course or or find ways to volunteer their time and support our cause so um it's been it's been great yeah
1: knowing what is possible and the worlds that we can build together and the world that we are building together what are some like absolute like deal breakers where you're like if you try to come to me with the same nonsense that you were doing before the pandemic and before all this happening, I'm not playing this game anymore. Like, what are, what are you like, now, now that I know and now that I've shown you what can be done, we're not going to play this game anymore. That's
2: hard.
3: I don't know if we have time for all of that, Jose.
1: Yeah, I
4: don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're all on a case-by-case basis, to be honest, because every, every project is different.
3: Um, on a personal level, as a person of color, um, I'm tired of being asked, uh, to contribute my own experience as an Asian American woman, um, the emotional labor that, that amounts to, um, to help someone develop their ideals around, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, um, uh, it, it is labor, and and I think you know we should be that should be acknowledged, and we should be compensated for it. Um, so personally, you know, I, I think we should all recognize that that um, is a facet of our identities that is valuable to people. Um, that um, you know we shouldn't be handing out for free anymore. So I'm I'm pretty tired of that. Yeah. <laughs> That
4: makes sense. I mean, I get it. I I understand that completely. I think for me, it's also one thing I will say is that I'm not going to tolerate people who are not willing to do the work. You have to do it on your own. It's not okay anymore to say, "Oh, I, I don't know any lighting designers of color." Like they're out there. Find them. If they're not right for your project, that's fine. But there are enough resources and channels where you can you can dig a little bit deeper and find people to at least interview
3: right to like, at least
4: interview at the end of the day the director or producer should pick the person who's best to create the vision for the show but you know i think we've all seen laziness and that's not acceptable anymore
3: yeah, I think, you know, for me, um, jobs in the commercial producing realm are hard to come by. Uh, there aren't a ton. Um, but, you know, when you ask folks around the industry why their offices look the way they do, oftentimes the response has been, uh, we'd love to in- increase our racial diversity, uh, but we don't know where to find these candidates. And I think that's such a tired response. Um First of all, some of these jobs aren't even publicized uh, and open to uh, the theatrical community. uh, Folks have traditionally been relying on recommendations from friends. And, uh, you know, these opportunities have gone to uh, someone because they're the nephew of so-and-so. Right. So I think um, that needs to change as well.
1: I wonder, you know, like, if there's, like, younger people out there are like, our listeners of yours who maybe aren't even in college yet, maybe they're just in high school, maybe they're just home or whatever, what are some things that you identified within yourselves, where maybe someone who's really good at, like, I don't know, getting their siblings to, to I don't know, to go somewhere, or what are some, like, traits and some qualities within you that you're like, if you're really good at this at home or in school right now, Even if you're not dreaming about theater at all, maybe you have what it takes to be a producer.
3: I think uh, leadership skills, you know, you're steering the ship when you're the producer. So finding ways to see the situation in front of you and uh, create a path for moving forward with, uh, with the group surrounding you. Is always good experience. Um, I think if you've ever found yourself being an entrepreneur, whether that's um, you know putting together a bake sale for your middle school and raising money for whatever, you know, those are all skills that require organization, vision, passion, um, and execution. So I think you know if if you've had any experience doing that, um, you're well on your way. Mm-hmm. And if you're a salesperson, because you have to you have to raise a lot of money. So if you think like asking people for money, then then that is a huge part of it. There's
4: a lot of transferable skills. I, I mean, I know people who go to school for producing, but very few. Most people are coming in as a as sort of a second career or they're just using things that they you know learned in other areas to do producing. But I will say, in addition to the things Miranda mentioned, you know, communication and empathy, you know, it's so important to be able to articulate your message to everyone so you can stay on the same page and it trickles down from the top, you know, your, your director has to understand what you want, their designers, your marketing people, all of that. And then empathy, you know, it really goes a long way. What we do is so vulnerable Creating, you know, getting performances out of actors, asking writers to do rewrites, you know, having a choreographer restage a number, you know, it all comes down to be a, being able to really um, put yourself in their shoes and be able to understand where they're coming from and how, why they created that and be able to, to sort of get changes or get revisions without killing dreams So those are two skills that I think are really important that, you know, are not high level. Like anyone can do that. We just have to take a step back. And that's also the process of doing the work is really making sure that you just know who your audience is, not the people who are seeing the show, but the people you're working for. Not everybody's going to respond to you throwing a chair across the room. You know, some people may need you to pull them aside and, Talk one on one, you know, and I think that those are two things that are often forgotten about in every aspect of life, not just theater. Um, so I always try to to approach things from that standpoint. Sometimes I fail, but you know, that's that's always my motive is to is to start there, and then then all the other things come in with being detail oriented and knowing how to read a budget and knowing, you know, theater history and all those things. Those things can, you know, be learned easily, but those those foundation skills I think are what's more important because you know, when you're tired and it's midnight and everything is going wrong, that's when we see your true
1: character. Amen. And that applies to every professional to every human being. Um, the way you're describing all of this is making me think that a producer is technically, and I know this isn't a competition, but a producer is technically a show's number one fan and their job is to recruit other fans and be like, look how freaking incredible this thing is. Come love it with me. I Is that accurate? I'd say so.
3: Yeah, I think it starts with passion uh, to Rashad's point, you need to be in head over heels in love with a project that you're producing because oftentimes a show's path could last anywhere from five to seven years. So you really have to love the material that you're putting out in the world, as well as the team that's surrounding you. Um, So I think that's a a great way to put it, Jose.
1: Uh, Rashad and Miranda, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Can you let us know where to find Everything about TPOC and everything that you want people to know about. Um, how can they get in touch with you? How can we make any contributions? What can we do to support this beautiful thing that you're that you've created and that you're making happen right now?
3: Yeah, for T-Pock, uh we have a website, uh, theater. ProducersOfColor.org. Um, if you want to stay up to date on what we're doing, we have a newsletter. If you want to make a contribution, we have a do- we have a donation link there. Uh, and if you want to email us, the contact information is there as well.
4: And we're also on Instagram and Facebook.
3: Instagram. And now, uh, what is that other one, Rashad?
1: Oh, Clubhouse.
3: Clubhouse. Yeah. We joined Clubhouse last night. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wonderful. So everyone go find them there if you can. And once again, thank you so much and keep up the incredible work. May you have nine more weeks of blessing and, you know, blessings and happiness and joy and we deserve it. And I'll keep tooting your horns uh, if you won't. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. I just want to remind you that... We are a podcast and a website that's completely funded by your contributions and your donations, and we are so grateful for that. Thank you for bearing with me specifically as I have been going through uh, a really rough time and um, have been very late in everything that I'm supposed to be doing, but thank you for your support and for hanging in there. I promise more uh, episodes and I promise that now that I know that we are not under another 45 (laughs) administration, I will drag myself out of bed more often to do work and actually be alive. And if you can, we always appreciate if you can rate and review our show, if you can share our episodes. And if you are not currently uh, one of our members on Patreon and you want to join our friend zone, we have exclusive content, newsletter, bonus Q&As, bonus videos, and we're going to have way more things uh, coming up for you. You can join starting at the $1 tier, which is my absolute favorite. And if you have a dollar to spare, we really, really appreciate it. Alexei, anything else that you want to say before we say goodbye?
2: Just thanks for having me on. It was a really great time. And I can't wait to hear what others, others think of Adrian Kennedy's show.
1: That's wonderful. Should we go and do our like, Shakira J-Lo Super Bowl performance? Like, obviously, don't even like, pretend that you're going to be J-Lo, because like, we know that I'm going to be j Lo for this. I might. So are need you ready for your hips? Time.
2: I may need <laughs> a little bit of rehearsal time before we come out. This pandemic has uh, made my dancing skills a little rusty, but for
1: sure. <laughs> so your hips do lie right now?
2: At the moment,
1: but you know. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Are we waiting? I'll be waiting for the moment so we can, let's get loud. Did that make sense grammatically? I don't know. But anyway, thank you all. I'm Jose. I'm Alexi. (laughs) And we're talking theater friends. We will see you next time. Bye-bye.